you know, we have everything to fight for and everything to win. It is realistic that we can win broad-based debt cancellation, but it's going to take a mass movement. It's going to take uh, direct action and civil disobedience and enormous public pressure in order to make it happen. So it's, it's go time. Hello, and welcome to episode 102 of our podcast at the Human Restoration Project. My name is Nick Covington, and I'm a social studies teacher from Ankeny, Iowa. Before we get started, I wanted to let you know that this is brought to you by our supporters, three of whom are Simeon Frang, Brandon Peters, and Andrea Barrera. Thank you for your ongoing support. You can learn more about the Human Restoration Project on our website, humanrestorationproject.org, or find us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. A conversation around student loan debt has been happening at the margins of American political life for nearly a generation. By 2012, total student loan debt in the United States surpassed $1 trillion, with the only relief coming from a pause on interest and federal debt collection that began with the pandemic in March 2020. Today, a majority of Americans, nearly 60% of polled voters, support some kind of forgiveness on the nation's now $1.7 trillion student loan debt, and borrowers have benefited from the pause on payments recently extended to May 2022. That's over two years without a single required payment, and seemingly without a single negative economic consequence. A recent study from the Student Debt Crisis Center also found that nearly 90% of borrowers are not financially secure enough to resume payments. So, is it time to pause these payments indefinitely? Is it past time for mass student loan debt forgiveness? While most of the conversations we have at HRP happen at the intersection of theory and classroom practice of education, Today, I'm joined by Thomas Gokey. Hey, I'm Thomas Gokey. I'm an organizer with the Debt Collective. Eleni Shermer. My name is Eleni Shermer, and I'm also an organizer with the Debt Collective. And Jason Wozniak. Yeah, I'm Jason Wozniak. I organize with the Debt Collective, but I'm also, like, my day job is a assistant professor of educational philosophy and theory at Westchester University. As they talk to us about their organization, Debt Collective, make the moral, economic, and pedagogical case for debt cancellation and let listeners know how to join their grassroots movement. You can follow Debt Collective on Twitter at StrikeDebt and visit their website at debtcollective.org. So the Debt Collective is a union for debtors. It is sort of modeled on a labor union, but instead of organizing workers around an employer, we are organizing debtors around their creditor. And it allows for a lot of experimentation. Um, uh, what has worked really well for us in the past is combining some kind of direct action or collective action with a legal mechanism. We do a lot of research on these different debt types, medical debt, carceral debt, student debt. And there are a lot of underused tools uh, a lot of underused legal mechanisms or enforcement mechanisms, but a lot of times it means gathering enough people and taking action to sort of force the issue through. Our philosophy in a nutshell is that the vast majority of debt that people are forced to take on is unjust and should not exist in the first place, and that you know people are forced into debt not because they live beyond their means, but because we have denied them the means to live. So we don't just want to get rid of credit card debt. 
we want to raise people's wages so that they aren't forced to put basic necessities on a credit card like diapers or medical bills. A lot of credit card debt is, is medical bills. We want to eliminate medical debt, but we also want Medicare for all so that medical debt doesn't exist anymore, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I guess just to contextualize a little bit within the, within the field of education, I think some of the things that Thomas mentioned, a lot of teachers can relate to, right? Like a lot of teachers are radically underpaid, overworked, and struggling just to make ends meet, which means going taking on a variety of types of debt, not just student loans, but also different types of debt, whether it be, you know, putting gas in the car, feeding the kids at night, or even, you know, I've talked to a lot of teachers over the years who take on a lot of debt to give their students stuff because their schools are underfunded. So you got a lot of teachers that will buy supplies for kids that need it or, you know, like make up for a book that's missing here or there, pencils, pens, all that stuff, you know, and all that adds up, right? So if you're on a really low salary, your benefits aren't so great because you know, teachers are constantly under attack. There's different ways that you accumulate debt as you're trying to both take care of yourself, your family, and your students and community. Student debt is not the only kind of debt that the debt collective is cares about and thinks is unjust. But it's perhaps the where we've had the conversation has gotten the most public and the loudest, especially over the last decade. Before the debt collective, it was even the debt collective. If you raise the notion of student debt cancellation to the average person and certainly the average politician, you'd look like you were like trying to get a ticket to Mars. Like it was an insane proposition. And now the question is not whether or not student debt will be canceled, but when and how much. And I think that's just really important that the debt collective has really kind of the one of the roles that it plays in this kind of policy and politics landscape is really pushing the questions to the to their sort of the maximum point. And not just sort of rhetorically making those points, but also trying to run up an organizing game to follow up with it. And so hopefully in a few months, people will be like, what was student debt again? I forgot about that stuff because we'll just blow this issue out of the water. And then we get to debt collective gets to get to work on other issues. One thing that I think I'm hearing here is that it's not just the case that um, the, the debt forgiveness is not the end goal in itself. That's kind of a starting point for... Um, for a broader societal transition towards more um, just means of uh, paying for higher education or freeing people of the burden, say, of that student loan debt that then allows them to contribute back towards their family and towards their communities rather than towards the need for the federal government, say, to charge its citizens um, interest on those, uh, on those loans. And so I think that's, that's a really interesting point to be made on there as well. Maybe we can kind of talk a little bit here about some of the, I don't necessarily want to frame it as arguments against, because I think we're, we're not necessarily at a point where we want to just be arguing with people or offering up refutations of talking points or things, but how can we bring more people into this conversation about um, student debt? Because I think in my, uh, in my lifetime, this is certainly the most mainstream I think this conversation has gone. So I don't know, what are, what are some common th pieces of resistance that you hear to people who um, say that loan forgiveness is either unfair or it's um, inequitable or some of those things to common people who may carry student debt themselves and can't see the point of, of student debt forgiveness. Or maybe there's somebody who, for whatever reason, either had have, have paid their debts off prior to that or have had their debts paid off for them. So what, what are some of the common um, sort of themes that you hear in resistance to that? And, and what are some ways that you all try to 
bring them in the conversation too. Yeah, I don't think there are good arguments against uh, student debt cancellation. We do, there's a lot of misconceptions. So one thing that we hear a lot is like, oh, you know, if you cancel the student debt, then that means somebody else is going to have to pay for it, that this is going to be picked up by taxpayers or something like that. And that's just not true because most of this debt is owed directly to the federal government. They can just wipe it all out and it doesn't need to be repaid. Nobody's taxes will go up. Nobody needs to pay for it. And we do see some bad faith arguments from some motivated bad faith sort of right-wing economists and policy wonks. Some people have tried to suggest that student debt cancellation is regressive. That's just factually false. The rich people don't have student debt because they're rich. They just pay tuition out of pocket and graduate without any debt, pass go, collect $200 and start their life way ahead of everyone else who doesn't have the same intergenerational wealth. And we know it's perfectly calibrated towards, you know, the people with the least amount of wealth are forced to take on the most amount of debt. So student debt cancellation is progressive. I think the the argument we hear that has some like emotional resonance is that we know there are some people who have really destroyed their lives, made huge sacrifices that nobody should have forced them to make in order to pay off their own debt. And I can sort of understand emotionally that they might say, well, that doesn't feel fair, that I, I had this horrible thing happen to me. But of course, the idea there isn't like, I suffered, everyone else needs to suffer too. I'm somewhat sympathetic to this. And then looking at it slightly differently, I'm less sympathetic to it, right? Like the reason that we're a lot of people who like paid off their debt graduated in the 80s or the 90s when the amount of debt that they had to take on was much lower than current students have to take on. So we're, we're just talking apples to oranges here. And that the reason we're in this situation right now is because those earlier generations did not organize and fight back. You know, the Debt Collective has been deeply inspired by the student movement in uh, Montreal and in Quebec, where when in 2012 or so, when Quebec was going to start charging tuition and fees, and it like on American scales, this was minuscule. We're talking like just a few thousand dollars. They shut down the universities. They shut down the city. They had the largest protests in Quebec's history. The protests were so large, they made it illegal to protest. And it's complicated, but they kind of sort of won. Um, And so if earlier generations had fought back when the student debt were, you know, the average debt were only $5,000 instead of $30,000, then we would have better funded public education and people wouldn't have debt at all. So although I'm partly sympathetic to that feeling of like, I destroyed my life. It's I shouldn't have had to. That's not fair. I agree. You shouldn't have had to do that. Let's make sure no one else has to do that either. Just to put what Thomas said so eloquently in really simple words, you know, if I have cancer, I don't think it means that I should want everyone else to get cancer and go through it. Or, you know, if I get knocked across the head and someone takes my wallet, I don't want that to happen to everybody else. But I also think there's a there's a really important point that I think is 
embedded in some of what Thomas said too, about the ways that we shift how we think of education in this country. And what's happened over the last 30, 40 years, not to use a technical term, but if you wanted to use it like in the neoliberal era, you have a shift where people think of education as a private good rather than a public good. And so this idea that I think another thing that you hear, in the, uh, especially on the right, is, oh, well, there's a lot of people that never went to university. They don't have debts, so why should they pay for any cost? Which, number one, isn't true, because as Thomas just pointed out. But even if it were, there's this whole idea of, like, when we have a well-educated society, democracy functions better. I mean, that's like a basic li liberal argument, right? And so, like, just this idea that we need to have a public investment in both economic terms and other terms in education if we want society to run well, if we want to have a better world. It does, it's a really selfish argument, I think, to make, like, oh, I didn't go there, so therefore I shouldn't contribute to it type thing. But it's the, the ways that we've been indoctrinated and taught. We're like, this is a private investment. This is going to help me compete in the world. It's going to help me get ahead of everyone. Rather than like a collective good, education is a collective good that we should all cultivate, contribute to, so on and so forth. So I think like going back to a point you made earlier, Nick, about like how you know, this is a means to an end. I think part of the end is to rethink how we consider the collective, how we consider public goods, how we think of what's good for other people besides ourselves. And debt is a way to get into that conversation. I think one of the arguments that is sort of undergirds both what the points that Thomas and Jason are, are bringing up is the idea that there's some kind of moral rationality behind debt. And that's part of the reason, you know, that's why especially people feel that there's sort of there's some kind of moral logic that when you have when you haven't had something and someone lends it to you, you're obliged to to take it to pay it back. And I think what the debt collective is trying to push for and what's really important is like why. And this is a bit to the point that Jason was making, which was like, why was this not free to begin with? Why in some ways weren't we paid <laughs> to attend this? This is a, a, a duty that we're performing to educate ourselves. It makes people really uncomfortable. I think more than the economics behind it, there's some kind of sense of some kind of real sort of moral gravity around the idea that if you, if you have debt, you have to pay it back. And that that is the, the fairness. And I think that really needs to be sort of examined and really thought about, really kind of interrogated, who owes what to whom. Um, somebody who was influential for me on this topic, and, and probably for many of you and many listeners as well, is David Graeber, um, who speaks with such you know, moral clarity on that issue of, of debt in, in, in all of his work, but particularly in his book, Debt. Um, and you know, it, it had always had a feeling that um, something sort of unjust was taking place in the system, but he really helps give you the the language and the, the historical context behind that idea that you're unpacking there. Just, just like, why is it not always a moral thing to pay your debts? Or why is that the societal expectation? And I think my thinking I know has changed in that regards, because for me as a, as a young person, it for, and probably for all people as young people, but especially in the 90s and early 2000s, the expectation just was go to college. You know, it's relatively cheap. We're in this golden age. And you're going to be able to pay back those debts. Not a, not a problem at all. Well, then folks like myself and my wife, um, you know, we, we all went to college. We, we got degrees. They crashed the fi whole financial system, you know, through no fault of our own and suddenly couldn't get the jobs that were promised to us, a whole generation um, of, of folks in that cohort um, and beyond, right? 
And so then we saw the, the stagnation of wages. And meanwhile, we saw the cost of everything else go up too. So housing has been you know, largely unaffordable for a generation. The cost of healthcare has increased. So we haven't been able to pay down that debt because it feels like the rug was pulled out from under us while we may well be examples of having done everything right. Right. You know, um, going to school, getting married, settling down, having kids and every step of the way just comes with higher costs and you can never seem to get out from underneath it. I think the reason that 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 is such a powerful idea is because it really flips the script away from, yeah, whose debt is it anyway? You know, um, part of part of loaning an 18 year old that debt in the first place is to say, well, you're taking some risk on that. So maybe the incentive should be to keep the economic system in place in the first place. So that way they'll have good jobs and they'll have high wages and they'll be able to pay those things off. Because I think for a lot of people in my cohort as well, um, and it, it could possibly include you three, but I've more than paid off my debt. You know, I've, I've paid back that original um, principal, you know, times over, but just due to the fact that uh, interest and economic circumstances have really prevented a, a dent in that original principal, I've been paying interest and, and essentially profit to the federal government for, for several years now. So yeah, it, it, is a, it is a really interesting conversation, I think, if you begin to rethink what the function of debt is and how that can actually be democratically, um, I guess, reconfigured or reimagined instead of just having the imposition of this notion of debt come to us from the people who, you know, ruined the economy in the first place. <laughs> well, exactly what you're saying, Nick, we know that the notion that some debts are mandatory and have to be paid is this kind of moral force. But we also know that there's plenty of debts that get canceled all the time. <laughs> President Trump had how many bankruptcies that just got all of his debts just got written off, written off, you know, the corporate debt that's just ballooned since, uh, especially since COVID, but even prior to COVID is, and that has been kind of just written off time and time again. The, the 2008 financial crisis was a whole, you know, <laughs> a debt forgiveness program, but for the, for, for the wealthy and for the banks, not for the working people. You know, I think that's an important thing to draw out here is that we do have some kind of moral vocabulary for debt being forgiven. It's just Whose debt are we willing to forgive and under what circumstances? I wanted to add something really quick to this narrative because, uh, Nick, you brought up a really important point, kind of like the education myth, like you got to go to school, you got to get a degree, so on and so forth. I think it's really important to note that the people that pushed that myth were boomers that went to school when he was either free or you could work a summer job and pay for it. And I just want to make one really quick historical point that I think is really vital to this conversation that I, Thomas reminded me of as well. Public universities across the country, in many cases, were free and or you paid just fees up until like the late 70s. So you had the University of California system, which guaranteed a free public higher education. You had the CUNY system in New York. That is taken away. And I think this is really important. It's not a natural economic development. This is a political decision to jack up prices and cut funding for higher education at the state and federal level. And one of the reasons that's done is because in the 1960s, you have a lot of different, quote unquote, radical movements happening on college campuses, mainly led by people that had historically been marginalized, i.e. Black, Hispanic, BIPOC, so on and so forth, women. They're on campuses and they're saying society and the university's got to change. They push for those changes. And then you get a pushback from the right. You know, a trilateral commission report comes out that Ronald Reagan reads religiously and follows with that says 
There's too much democracy on campuses. The students don't respect authority. Okay, Reagan and his friends say, how do you get them to, quote unquote, respect authority and how do you tamper down these revolts? They come up with a good plan. Drive tuition and put people in debt because debt then becomes a disciplining apparatus. And so these debts that are owed by generations post-boomer are the direct result of political decisions to tamper down democracy, to create this hierarchical relationship of authority, so on and so forth, to continuously try to marginalize people that have been marginalized throughout the, the history of this country. So I think it's really important to, to keep the historical context in mind when thinking about like who owes who what, are these debts legitimate or illegitimate, so on and so forth. And always remember, universities were free in this country, they can be free again. They're free in other countries. I used to live in Brazil for 10 years. You go to grad school in Brazil, the government in a public university, they will pay you to study. So there's just all sorts of different examples that we can use to say it doesn't have to be this way. Yeah, I just wanted to add on to that, that there's always, in, a, in American history, there's always this sort of racist component to our education system that, you know, arguably, apart from the criminal justice system, our education system is the, the most racist part of our society. And uh, Elizabeth Tandy Sherman, Shermer uh, is a historian who, who wrote a recent history of the student debt crisis and shows that in a lot of ways, it is born out of segregationist policies, that universities, there were at various points in American history, a desire to provide direct federal government funding to universities to make them free to attend. And the university said, we don't want that because there will be strings attached. We want intellectual freedom. The strings that they were worried about was that they would not be able to make the decisions about admissions that they wanted to make. That you know, universities used to and to, to and to some degree still are, these elitist institutions. So they wanted to make sure it was primarily white men that they admitted. And they were afraid that as soon as they take government funding. So why do we have the system we have? We have basically a voucher system where your student debt, the, the funding goes to the student and the university competes for the students who have that funding attached. And you know, universities were free in this country for some people, Right? So like in the City University of uh, New York, which was a beautiful free university for working class white people. And there was a big effort in the 1970s to force open admissions, because even though it wasn't segregated by law, it was segregated in fact. And they won. They won open admissions. And then almost on cue, there was an economic recession. They said, oh, well, we can't afford to keep this university free, we're going to start charging tuition. And I, I, don't, I think that there's a direct link between, oh, as soon as you allow black students in the door, we have to somehow keep the social order in place. And debt is a very powerful tool for social discipline. So in some, to some degree, it's absolutely true. We used to have free universities. We can have them again. To another degree, it's like we've We've never really had the university that we want or deserve, and we need to build it. Uh, the, the university of our dreams is in the future. I want to touch on so many of these different points. 
Elena, you're exactly right. I mean, I even just look more recently at the PPP loans. Uh, those have been forgiven 100%, you know, in mass forgiveness for small business owners, I guess, in theory, but also, right, some of the most wealthiest people in this society who basically got, uh, uh, got free um, federal money, got taxpayer money um, under those programs. And I think, too, that the notion of almost like a generational warfare, uh, if you look at uh, which uh, demographics have the most wealth in this society today, it pretty much scales with the people that, Jason, that you were talking about here, you know, that boomer generation now has the vast bulk of the wealth in the society, um, followed by Gen X, and then, of course, the us poor millennials down, <laughs> down at the bottom of this thing. And it does kind of seem like, you know, the just thing to do, it, it's not a sustainable trajectory, right? It means that my kids are going to be poorer, and then their kids are going to be poorer, etc. So, so it really does amount kind of to this generational jubilee, right? To say, let's allow, uh, let's lift this burden from the youngest, you know, the poorest, the neediest among us, and let them build up the generational wealth for their families as we had as well. And I think, Thomas, to your point as well, I was just looking at the statistics for, you know, the demographics of student debt. And I think the largest debt holders um, are maybe black Americans, um, hold, uh, hold a, a large majority of, uh, of the student debt total. So, you know, there would even be some, some equity in that as well, allowing historically marginalized groups to allow, again, the, to develop the generational wealth that older, whiter generations enjoyed. And, and certainly it has been taken out on, on the higher education system when the students who go to put their education into practice then get punished by the, I guess, the elites at, at the top with the power who you know, want to sort of neuter them from being able to flex uh, the, their socioeconomic, sociopolitical power. And Jason, we were talking briefly before we hit record about you know, your interest on the impact of debt and, and pedagogy. And I definitely see this as, uh, as an educator and in our state in particular, the emphasis on STEM, you know, the emphasis on college and career readiness, um, which is usually just meaning workforce preparation for kids, because it seems like in the wealthiest country in the world, our education system is really focused on high stakes outcomes for kids because, you know, once they leave high school, college is so expensive. We need to make that worthwhile. You know, the, the likelihood of them getting a good job is kind of contingent on that college completion. So, you know, I don't know if you want to speak to that, the impact of, of debt and pedagogy there, but I'd, I'd love to hear um, that perspective as well. Yeah, I, I really appreciate you bringing this up because I think it's ironically, you know, we talk about student debt, but we often don't talk about how this debt impacts educational experience. And so you'll hear an argument around the morals of it, the economics of it, the politics of it, but very rarely do we actually talk about like, what does this do to the to the educational experience of both teachers and students? And I think you, you kind of hinted at one way. You can trace different ways that debt messes with or, or makes miseducative experiences happen. And I think one way you hinted at, which is to say that once you know that debt is waiting for you in the future, you start to adopt this like return on investment approach to your education. So you start to think of education, not in like, how do I make myself a more full, freer human being, but instead, how do I shape myself as human capital that's going to be able to sell myself on a market? How do I brand myself? How do I continuously be an entrepreneur of myself? And so you take on this return on investment logic and you do this, what you just mentioned. You, may love, you might love poetry, you might love art, you might love philosophy, but instead you become an engineer or an investment banker because you have these debts to pay and you know that your education has to have an economic return 
rather than say like a social or humanistic return. And you shape your educational path that way. So as a student, you start to make these rational choices and you can't really fault students for thinking this way because they know what's waiting for them at the end, right? This massive debt. As demoralizing as it might be to think of education this way, you kind of understand it from a rational argument. The other thing though to think about is the ways that this impacts teachers themselves. So the NEA has a really good study that lists just how bad the teacher debt crisis is, like K through 12 and adjunct and faculty in higher ed. And the debt levels are astronomical. I think like average around $60,000 for the average teachers teaching in K through 12. That's crazy. When we think of it though, like how does that impact how they teach? All sorts of interesting things start to become uncovered. So as Thomas said, like debt is a disciplining mechanism. If you're in major debt and you're at a school where you think you need to be teaching, maybe it's critical race theory or some other controversial topic, but you are afraid that you're going to lose your job and then not be able to pay your debt. That has disciplined how you teach in the classroom. Maybe it keeps you from speaking up. Maybe it keeps you from assigning certain assignments, reading certain books, because you're afraid that if you lose your job, you're screwed. And so it, it disciplines the teachers this way. Last point about this is that I think one of the things that we're seeing more and more is that education K through 12 up until higher ed becomes a process of socialization into the death economy. In other words, from a very early age, kids are socialized into taking the role of debtors. And this actually happens. You brought up like something you mentioned in previous programs here. If you look at the way report cards and grades are structured, it's almost identical to credit reports. Both the credit report and the report card will give you an evaluation where you get like a letter or a number score based on the amount of work you do in a specific amount of time. As a student, you accumulate credit. So there's all sorts of ways where from a very early age, the grading system report cards are socializing students into the debt economy. In other words, how to be an obedient debtor, how to meet the demands of the creditor. And over the years, this then ends up serving people in power, i.e. creditors. And so there's just all sorts of different ways in which the material reality of financial debt starts to impact the educational reality of what happens in our classrooms and the ways that we learn and teach. And I think that's something that really, as an as a audience that you have a lot of teachers with, I really hope that teachers can start to think about like this question, how is the debt that I owe, or perhaps my students might owe, or their parents might owe, how is that changing what we teach and learn in classrooms? I think Jason kind of nailed all of that. I mean, I guess just one tiny thing is that you know, this is some work that Jason and I have really been pushing in the higher ed context, but it's equally as true in some cases and more so in the K-12 context, which is that this debt doesn't just burden individuals. It also burdens the institutions themselves. So budget cuts and the, de the decline of progressive taxation that funds higher ed and K-12 schools means that these schools themselves also take on debt. And they pass on a lot of that debt to students in higher ed in the form of tuition, which then becomes student debt. But that's also the cost that workers and the public bear in terms of program budget cuts, furloughs, all kinds of austerity pressures that institutions K-12 through higher ed face is a function of debt in a lot of cases. And there's, it's kind of, you know, for any kind of like budget nerds out there, it's really interesting when you start to look at your institution's budget and take a, just begin to understand what portion debt service plays in the institution's budget. 
you know, in the, the Philly public schools, it's, it's close that they had to actually pass some laws saying that it couldn't grow higher than 10% of the budget, <laughs> but it hovers around 9% right now of the whole school district's budget goes to paying the interest and the fees and the principal of borrowing money that they didn't have. So this, this debt, I think a good way, I've heard Thomas say this before, and it really stuck with me. Debt is a poverty tax. It's the price that we pay from not having enough to begin with. And that is true from, from the people, from students, from educators and institutions themselves. So I think it's pretty comprehensive. When you put your debt goggles on, you start seeing it everywhere. I just want to plug an article that Eleni wrote because she won't do it. But Eleni wrote a piece for the New York Times on K-12 debt that, in my view, as an educator and someone that studies this stuff, is probably one of the most important pieces to come out in the last who knows, at least in our generation, right? So Eleni Shermer, the New York Times, check out this article if you're interested in this question of K-12 debt. It is so important. And just to add to what Eleni said, the Philadelphia School District is paying over $300 million a year in debt service. $150 million of that is in interest and fees alone. If you're an educator, ask yourself, what could the district do with $300 million, especially now during COVID? How many masks does that buy? How many tests does that buy? Does it hire new nurses? Does it hire social workers? Does it fix the buildings that are falling down? Not all of them, but maybe at least steal some windows, at least who knows what. So just think about what that money does. And in this piece, Eleni kind of highlights this. So I just really encourage everyone that's listening to check out this piece by Eleni in the New York Times, which came out a couple months ago. That is incredible. And I'll definitely, I'll add that in the show notes to it as well. Wrapping things up as we kind of move towards action steps that our listeners can take and talking about the, the week of action that you all have planned next week, just kind of thinking some of the key points from, from the last um, half an hour per se is, is thinking about debt is not inevitability, it's a choice. And it's kind of a combination of the kind of society and the kind of um, economic system that, that we want to have. And, and we have a say in, uh, in certainly what that looks like, at least going forward. Um, since we didn't have a say in, in the one that we sort of generally, generationally inherited. So what kind of things then, if listeners are interested in getting involved, what kinds of individual actions can they take, collective actions toward forgiveness, uh, achieving that at a political level, um, or perhaps at resistance, at uh, keeping pressure on um, elected officials either to indefinitely suspend those loan payments as they've been continually pushed back or, or achieve full forgiveness? or getting involved in Debt Collective? Where, where do you think our listeners should start? Yeah, I would encourage your listeners to go to uh, debtcollective.org and join the union and you know get involved. We have some local branches uh, around the country. We don't have any currently in Iowa, although we have members in Iowa. So if there are folks who want to help get something off the ground in Iowa, that would be fantastic. Thankfully, we have won an extension to the payment pause. And because of the rising COVID rates, we have decided to suspend our in-person week of action that we had been planning on the previous timeline. And instead, we have a debtor's assembly and strategy session that is going to happen virtually on January 23rd, 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Central on Sunday, January 23rd. It's going to be a virtual meeting, and it's going to lead up towards future direct action, both in person and just other things that we can do 
to resist, cause trouble, and prevent them from turning student loan payments on at all, ever. The, you know, the, currently, they're threatening to turn them back on on May Day of all days. And to force through broad-based debt cancellation, right? We, we haven't talked about it yet, but Joe Biden can cancel 100% of federal student loans with one signature. We've already written the executive order. All he has to do is sign it. You know, we have everything to fight for and everything to win. It is realistic that we can win broad-based debt cancellation, but it's going to take a mass movement. It's going to take direct action and civil disobedience and enormous public pressure in order to make it happen. So it's it's go time. Can I, I just want to add to that, too, again, um, this focus on teachers. And Eleni and I have been doing some work reaching out to different teacher unions and talking with different teachers about how we really want teachers to play a frontline role in this. I know you're busy as hell and you got a lot going on, but there's also a lot of freedom to win with this. And again, like teachers are under an enormous pressure and enormous stress right now. But I think the only way that we can alleviate some of that stress, at least, is by fighting for debt cancellation. And every single educator deserves that and it should be demanded. And so keep your eye out if you do end up joining the Debt Collective for specific events and discussions tailored towards teachers that we hope to cultivate over the next couple months and beyond. So if you're a teacher and you're listening, to, to keep this on your radar because we want to get you plugged in. Really, I think the most important thing is just to really take a step back and look at how far the conversation has come in the last decade. You know, that's a product of absolutely relentless unapologetic belief in the the justice that we need and organizing. And I think Thomas and Jason both said, getting involved at your school, starting a debt collective chapter, joining a debt collective chapter, talking to your colleagues about why we should think of teachers unions as debtors unions. That's an important alliance to be made. I think there's a lot of ground yet that we're, we're still gonna cover. There has been so much progress made, I mean, in the last two years, let alone the last decade. But I think we've still got some more consciousness raising, I think, to go, not just to continue to push this into the mainstream, but then also to get people from the next step, from awareness uh, to that action, you know, to taking those next steps. So I want to thank you all so much for taking the time uh, uh, with me this morning to talk about this. You know, you can follow the Debt Collective at Strike Debt on Twitter. So, So thank you so much again for joining. Thank you for the work. Yeah, thanks for having us. This is cool. Glad to be in touch. Thank you again for listening to Human Restoration Project's podcast. I hope that this conversation leaves you inspired and ready to push the progressive envelope of education. You can learn more about progressive education, support our cause, and stay tuned to this podcast and other updates on our website at humanrestorationproject.org.